Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, War, What Is It Good For? The talk was given by Bandu Dunham on April 30th, 2022, via Zoom. Bandu is a longtime spiritual practitioner, author of Creative Life, and an internationally recognized glass artist. He begins this talk by referencing a poster of a soldier being shot, with the caption Y under the picture, which was circulated during the time of the Vietnam War. He discusses teachings attributed to the Yaqui Indian Don Juan in the Carlos Castaneda literature, and from teachers Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, George Gurdjieff, Morahei Ueshiba, and Lee Loswick, along with information from Self-Observation, a book written by Red Hawk. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Bandu Dunham. One of the things we did in our community that I belong to was to set up some households and people would live together. And my teacher gave every household one of these posters and asked us to put it up prominently it was pretty clear that when people live together, there's levels of misunderstanding, hostility, and even aggression that manifest that we seem not to be in control of. When people get together, there's hostility. We hurt each other in ways that are really sort of unhuman. And the question is why? Just as, you know, this poster is from like the Vietnam War, right? Why? I mean, it could be from any war. You know, there's plenty of people getting shot to make posters out of. But this question of why never really goes away. I'm listening to some audiobooks on history of ancient Rome, and they're always going to war with each other, <laughs> different people. And a question I want to ask is why do we measure history in terms of war? There's history of specific subjects, history of science or whatever, discoveries and breakthroughs and challenges and things that people go through, and different subjects that you have the history of whatever. But when we talk about history in general, we always measure it in terms of war. That's what kids have to learn. I understand why. I mean, it's a little bit of a rhetorical question, right? Obviously, war is a significant historical event in the sense that it controls who's getting power. People are moving, people are dying, it's a big cataclysm, it's very dramatic. But what are the consequences of measuring our history in terms of war, that war are the great events that shape us? I think one of the consequences is that we tend to feel like if there isn't a war happening, then there's nothing going on, subconsciously, if not consciously, and I think even consciously. I remember there was a movie about, I forget what it was called, it was about the Christmas armistice, you know, that famous incident in World War I? where on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, the soldiers on opposite sides, the British and the Germans, stopped fighting. They were singing Christmas carols and even had a soccer game or something. It's a true story. And then afterwards, their leaders promptly separated those soldiers and sent them off into all different places so that such a terrible thing as a Christmas armistice would never happen again. But in the movie version of that, there's a scene where these two kids from a small Scottish town or Irish town, they hear that they're going to war. They're being drafted, they're volunteering or whatever, or they hear that the war is starting. And they say to one of the old men in town, says, finally, something is happening. We're going to go to war. And the kids are all excited. These young men, they're ready to go off to war. And the, the old man just starts crying. He's just weeping because he knows what's going on. So that tendency in human nature, that's just something I wanted to point out. But my main principle that I wanted to talk about tonight, the main principle that this talk is based on is that whatever is going on out there is going on in here. So the horrors of war that are going on out there, the horrible behavior of people in war, 
I'd like to think that I am not capable of doing those things. I would never do those horrible, terrible things that's going on. Pick your war, any war. But, you know, to be honest, and I think that's an essential part of spiritual practice, to be really honest and to find some usefulness in the consideration of what war is. I have to recognize and admit to myself that what's going on out there is going on in here. Maybe not to the same degree, maybe not manifesting in the same way, but to think that I am not capable of being horrible is to be a little bit in denial. And uh, that's not a fun thing to consider, but I think it's uh, a very fruitful path of consideration to look at that. And as I mentioned in the description of the talk, that's a way of making war obsolete in the long run, right? What are the chances of us making war obsolete anytime soon? Pretty small. And yet, there is something we can contribute, not necessarily to the current situation, but for the evolution of the species. I mean, there are practical things you could do. You can donate to some of these causes, but that's not what I'm talking about tonight so much. Mostly, I want to talk about what are the spiritual implications of the existence of war, and especially. What does that say about us as human beings? And that none of us are exempt from that. I certainly try to pursue a peaceful life, but I have plenty of aggression that I manifest from time to time. And what is the nature of aggression? To me, that's the question. What is the nature of aggression? And what does it say about us? And how do we work with that? Any comments, questions right now? As you were speaking, I was remembering when I was taking care of. Men who had fought in wars. I was caregiver for a couple of guys. One was in Vietnam. And one of the things he told me, it really added to something that I had not considered before. They were in um, the front lines and they were being shot at. He said during that time, he had never felt more alive. And I talked to him about that. I said, What do you mean? And he said, Because at any moment you could die. It was like death was right there. They saw their their fellow soldiers getting killed and they see the worst of it. But he said he never felt more alive. We commonly hear that from veterans because they never felt more alive because the stakes were high. I mean, I'm going to talk about spiritual warriorship in terms of why that's a metaphor for spiritual life. Don Juan, Carlos Castaneda's mentor, either real or fictional, he said that... Uh, If you're going to become a man of knowledge, if you're going to study what he called sorcery, but if you're going to study spiritual practice, because it was a whole system, he said that a man goes to knowledge as he goes to war. You have these four qualities of a warrior. You go to war with fear, with respect, with something, and absolute assurance. Anyway, the qualities that you need for spiritual work are the same ones in some respects in a different form that a warrior needs, someone going into war. And that feeling that these are very high stakes and you can't afford to not be present, not be paying attention. That's why people feel more alive in war, because of having to be in that state of awareness and mindfulness. A soldier is not supposed to think about whether what they're doing is correct, right? Soldiers are just supposed to take orders and go in. And of course, in the modern world, with atrocities so easy to commit, we tend to hope soldiers will follow some kind of rule of law and not be committing war crimes. But there's a quality of going in and not thinking about what you're doing. You know, you just have to do it. As an artist, I did a little bit of art history, whatever, and there was this movement in modern art, beginning of the 20th century, called Futurism. And these guys were into the dynamic quality of the evolving technology and the world was going faster and faster and power kind of led into some other things that were sort of interesting in art. But one of their spokespeople, Filippo Marinetti, who wrote a uh, manifesto, he was Italian, he wrote this manifesto about futurism, how great it was. He could get a little bit crazy, I think. He said, we declare that the world's wonder has been enriched by a fresh beauty, the beauty of speed. There is no more beauty except in struggle, 
for art can be nothing but violence, cruelty, and injustice. We want to glorify war, the only hygiene of the world. A little bit intense, but it's an example to me of being very swept up in the allure of power and technology and the, the dynamic quality of things moving. It has an aggression to it that in this case, I think there was not a lot of self-examination about what the real meaning of that aggression was. As a spiritual student, attitude I try to cultivate is that my qualities of greed and power, hungering after power and aggression are worthy of being investigated. They might be part of human nature. We might not even be able to do much about them, but there's something that should be investigated and considered. Because a practice of self-observation is really maybe the most powerful thing we can do. <clears throat> so again, what I see going on out there is what's going on in here. Even if it's not entirely true, it's a very useful way to look at things. Make a practical example. If I'm in an argument with someone and I'm really sure that I'm right, and I'm just going on and on about how right I am, there's not much self-observation happening there. If I can stop and consider that maybe the thing that annoys me that the other person's doing is something that I myself do, and this is something that psychologists tell us is very true, right? The thing that annoys me about you is something that I'm probably doing myself. If I'm willing to do that, if I'm willing to turn the lens back on myself and look at what my tendency toward aggression might be, then it can make situations, practical situations, a lot more workable. But the thing about aggression, what tends to go with it is this feeling of self-righteousness. And this is a quote I come back to again and again. It's from Llewellyn Vaughn Lee, who's a Sufi teacher. And he was talking in metaphysical or mystical terms about negative energy coming into our world. There's energies that come to us from outside of our reality, reality of day-to-day that we're aware of. It's just these cosmic forces that come around from time to time, influences of planets or whatever. And he said that the form of negativity that is coming into the earth right now, the way it's showing up, he was British, he called it righteousness. But as Americans, we would say self-righteousness, that feeling that I am so right and you are so wrong. And you are so wrong, in fact, and I am so right that I feel justified in not only disagreeing with you, but trying to destroy you. And if you look at what's going on in the world today in the domain of politics, in international relations, and even just general conversation on the internet, there is a lot of this kind of righteousness making the other person not just mistaken, but wrong and evil, and even something to be not just challenged or competed with, but actually destroyed. It's not that there's no evil in the world, but we have a tendency to make things more evil than they are. The thing that's interesting about that is how it serves my ego to do that. Because really, that's what's behind all of it, is my ego, what my ego wants. Again, this idea of what's going on out there is what's going on in here. So the aggression that I see manifesting around me out in the world is actually going on within myself. Does anyone ever feel conflicted? Anyone ever felt internal conflict? Yes, a lot of people. Because internal conflict, I think, is a universal experience. And again, sometimes if I feel conflicted, Maybe the way for me to psychologically resolve my conflict, sort of to appease my ego, not necessarily to resolve the conflict in any real way, is to take that conflict that I'm feeling inside and project it outside of myself onto someone else or something else. I mean, if you think about witch burning, this to me is a very tangible example from American history. And, you know, we refer to things as witch burnings. But the way that witch burning would often show up, right? is there might be a problem in your village. The crops aren't growing. The weather is bad. There's a wild bear attacking people's sheep. Who knows? There's a problem. And a primitive way that human beings deal with situations like that 
or try to deal with them or pretend to deal with them or just reassure themselves that they're doing something to deal with a situation that they may or may not have any power over, is they take that evil and they find a source for it. They project the suffering that they're experiencing, the problems they have. The source of that problem must be something tangible, a person or evil spirit or something that is the cause of that. And then we can project whatever we decide is the cause. It might be an evil spirit, or it might be a person in the village who's a scapegoat, convenient scapegoat, someone who's sort of weird, or someone who maybe you want to kind of get rid of anyway. You project onto them that they must be doing this. They must be casting a spell. They must be a witch. And what do we do then? Burn them! Burn the witch, right? So uh, yeah, it's, it's in a number of cultures. It's not like just in the history of Western society where negativity is projected onto someone. That person then bears the brunt of everyone's negative feelings about whatever that negativity is. And then the idea is to purge the community, the society of that negativity by destroying that person, burning them was very nice symbolic purification to burn someone or stoning them, all the wonderful ways that people had of dealing with the negativity that makes them uncomfortable is by destroying the person associated with that. So you project the negativity onto someone else, kill that person, and then the problem's handled. I feel great. I don't have to think at all about what negativity might be in me. I don't have to think at all about the creepy vibe in my village that I might be contributing to. Yes. Uh, actually, I wanted to add uh, that I saw a documentary lately about Judaism. And it's exactly what you're saying. The Jews were always the scapegoats whenever there were problems in the nation. The Jews were always welcome scapegoats. It was a very interesting documentary. I learned a lot about that. I understood a lot more what's happening actually with the Jews. Really, any minority in a society is subject to having that kind of projection on them. I mean, look at the stereotypes we have about Black people in this country, yes. or Hispanic people, or about Native Americans, or about any minority you want to name. Uh, to some degree, if I'm really honest with myself, there's something in me that's like, oh, this guy's different than me. You know, there's something different about us. And in observing myself, I notice there's a threshold in myself that I need to step over. And it's not typically a very big deal. And yet it's there. And the fact that it's there at all is an indication to me that there's something to be looked at there. We see it often that discomfort gets magnified and politicians use it to turn people against each other, get them all excited, get them to vote for them or just support them in one way or another. This idea of scapegoating, and that's why I wanted to keep coming back to this principle of what's going on out there is going on in here. I wanted to talk a little bit also about the amygdala. It's actually two little glands connected together that are in the brain. One's in the left hemisphere, one's in the right hemisphere, about the size of an almond. The amygdala has to do with processing sensation and emotions and fear and pleasure and aggression. So certain sort of animalistic functions are controlled by the amygdala. Another way to talk about it is there's a certain pleasure in resolving things. So like if there's something going on in my village and I find someone to blame that I can accuse of being a witch and then I burn that witch, I feel like the situation has been handled. It's been resolved. And that resolution is very satisfying. The amygdala gets involved in that. That is that satisfaction of resolving it. Literally in World War II, the Nazis had this agenda item of the final solution, right? Their final solution. Finally going to get rid of all the Jews. And people rallied behind that. Obviously, after the war, a lot of German people were like, oh my God, how did that happen? Well, there's things in human nature that can be manipulated and people have fears. But anyway, this idea, the satisfaction of a final solution, getting rid of something, dealing with it once and for all. I mean, when we argue with people, when I'm in an argument with someone, I kind of want to get to that final solution, victory, my victory, of course, preferably, right? And just dominate that person and be done with it and not have to deal with it again. 
there's so much in society that just operates on that principle of seeking the resolution of a final solution and being done with it. That drive, that aggressive drive to deal with things with like this sort of finality, there's something very animalistic about that. And our willingness to buy into that, I think, makes us very easy to manipulate as a species. Now it's like crazy. It's insane. But people can be led to buy into that because of what we have, this animalistic part of our nature that as human beings, I think it's our responsibility to come to terms with. And I can't make you come to terms with it. I can't make anyone else in the world come to terms with it. The only thing I can do is try to come to terms with it myself. And along the way, we have conversations and so on. Ultimately, I have to take responsibility for what's going on over in Ukraine, not because I literally had actions involved in it. Although if you follow the money, we're kind of all implicated in everything, right? Products we get are manufactured in different parts of the world. You buy something and you're supporting some regime somewhere that's doing something horrible. So in that respect, we are kind of all karmically entangled. But I'm talking on a spiritual dimension. The responsibility that I have is to try to build a world that does not do that. And it's no small task. You know, have you ever noticed, I look at my desk right now, fortunately, you guys can't see my desk because it's a disaster area because um, I have too many projects going on and I just tend to just pile things here. But when it comes time to clean my desk, which is time's approaching, the thing that works best, I find, is to start in one spot. You just have to start in one spot and create a little corner of sanity, right? You create that one corner of sanity. You put things where they go, even if it means you have to get up and take it to another room. You just start. And by progressively expanding that island of sanity, my desk gets cleaned. But if I take any other approach, it tends to just collapse and get bogged down. And I just sit there thinking about how it needs to get cleaned up. So as far as improving the world, fixing the world, changing the world, that's kind of the same principle. As Gandhi said, you have to be the change that you want to see in the world. And recognizing when I'm not doing that so well, when I am feeling aggressive, I want to crush somebody or something and deal with it in this final way. The uh, Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Shogun Trungpa Rinpoche, he talked about how in relationships, in any relationship, friendship, whatever, a sign of maturity and sanity is the willingness to return. Even if a situation's gotten screwed up, it didn't resolve the way you liked, you don't brush off the relationship completely. You have a willingness to come back. Even if you can't change the circumstance, you stay engaged or you re-engage. You don't just write people off, brush them off. Now, obviously, there is sometimes when you should do that, but most typically, it's better, it's more relational if things can come back, can revisit things, reconnect with someone. It seems to me that really strong, aggressive feelings are very primal, maybe rooted in early childhood hurts. I had read in a book by Alice Miller that Hitler was humiliated as a child. Her take on it was that he was taking out his humiliation on other people to such an extreme degree. At times when I have felt real aggression, it's like an irrational thing. It's like being possessed. Yes, yeah, like being possessed. Would you say something about how you work with that? how you work with these energies in the world now. We're all feeling those things, even though we're not directly involved. And also the inner, more primal energies when they get triggered. Well, I think, yeah, it can be helpful to remember that there's a lot of crazy energy flying around in the world right now. So not to deny the things that I need to work on. And also just with the pandemic, as many have observed, to some degree, people have forgotten how to human. <laughs> You know, as a result of just the weirdness of the pandemic and the isolation that's happened and the lack of outlets and forms of release of tension that we're familiar with and comfortable with. So there's just 
weirdness in the atmosphere, it can be useful just to recognize that that's the case. It doesn't eliminate the need to work with it consciously, but just to recognize that not everything I'm feeling necessarily is coming from me even. A comment my teacher made once was that your feelings are like none of your business. (laughs) And what he meant by that was that very often, I won't say 100%, but very often what we're feeling is not even the result of what our current situation is. Some of the aggression that manifests is due to something that we're reacting to that happened to us a long time ago. You know, if I have unresolved hurt from my childhood, if I can resolve that somehow, the traumas that I have in my life are, of course, nothing like traumas that someone in war or children now in places like Ukraine are experiencing. But there's something analogous to that. Things that I've buried in myself, as long as I can't get to them and look at them, they have a greater chance of having power over me in that they would unconsciously control my actions, my feelings, my choices. I'm just sitting here thinking about this idea that you brought forth earlier about how the amygdala wants to move towards resolution in its function. And in a time when there's a lot of suffering in the world, which we have had in the last two years, people want resolution however they can get it, which is showing its face again in the Ukraine. And I think that the only saving grace in all of it in terms of what might be motivating us as a human race to want to move toward the ultimate resolution is our individual practice, is my individual practice, because no matter what's happening in any area of my life, I can rely on my practice to carry me through. For me, that's a real saving grace, because so much of this is just unexplainable. So much of this is just completely in a domain that I'm not even sure I want to enter into relative to understanding all of the different mitigating aspects of it. Great. Thank you. That's, yeah, that's very helpful to consider. I think when people commit suicide, I think one of the motivations is like just to be done with it, done with all this suffering. Death can't be as bad as what I'm experiencing right now, right? Suicide hotline. That's something that people need sometimes too. As you say, figuring it out may not be the point. In Buddhism, I know they talk a lot about groundlessness, a willingness to endure a state of being groundless. I think Pema Chodron talks about this a bit. But in general, that re-engaging of relationship, it's kind of like being groundless because you don't know how it's going to go. You know, you just had an argument with someone and you see them and you approach them maybe to have another conversation. And in that moment, it takes a certain kind of courage because you don't know how it's going to go. There's a vulnerability there of this could go either way. And sometimes that sort of writing things off is a way of avoiding the vulnerability of revisiting a situation that might be uncertain or tenuous. And that tension of the uncertainty makes us want those kind of final solutions, whether on a small scale or a large scale. John Cleese, the guy from Monty Python, he was being interviewed once. He was talking about creativity in writing, like in writing comedy, writing their movies, stuff, whatever. And he said that the best writing would come out of situations when people were willing to like not go for the quick joke. There might be a quick joke you can make here. Okay, you write the quick joke and you can go on. But he said they would come up with a lot better material If there was a situation and they knew there was a joke there somewhere, there's a joke, but you don't jump on the first one. You let that uncertainty be present for a while and you get a lot better solution. He pointed out that that's a principle of creativity. And I think that's true, that if we're willing to endure this sort of no man's land of uncertainty and just be receptive to what might come to us, we're much more likely to get a real creative solution then if we just decide we've got to solve this situation and I'm going to go in there, the fastest way to solve this situation is probably the most aggressive way to solve the situation, which in some circumstances is appropriate if there's a real emergency. But in many circumstances, 
that fast, quick solution. It's like in Star Wars, Yoda's talking about the light side of the force, the dark side of the force. At some point when he's training Luke Skywalker, he says, if you choose the dark side of the force, if you choose the quick and easy path, then something will happen to you terrible. That is, I don't know, whatever it was. That was one of the principles that they pointed out. The quick and easy path is like the dark side of the force. And you look around, that's kind of, and look around the world, it's kind of true. Our technology, interestingly enough, our technology is based a lot on trying to find the quick, easy solution, the convenient solution. And in principle, there's nothing wrong with making things easier and improving situations. But also, if we don't examine that drive to find the quick, easy solution, we can end up creating situations where there are unintended consequences. It's harder to look at unintended consequences if you're in a rush to find a solution to whatever the problem is. And also the rush that you're talking about, instead of staying in the discomfort of the unknown, the the vulnerability of the not knowing, and hanging out there with all of the contradictions and all of the the stuff that's out in the middle of all that, that's so uncomfortable for us as human beings. I know the quick, easy thing for me is always it's on a fight flight spectrum. Yeah. And I have to really watch that. It seems like aggression is commonly fear based. We're really aggressive as a species toward people that we're afraid of. In war, a lot of times there's just fear running rampant and people do horrific things as a result of that or toward minorities. Um, There's some fear at play there. I agree. (laughs) And being present with fear, to just be in the state, if I'm willing to just be vulnerable and be present with that fear, paradoxically, I can relax a little bit. If I accept that fear is there, it's like not a conscious choice of mine, but it's this response. So I think in general, as human beings, if we're going to evolve spiritually, individually, and and as a species, we have to be willing to endure this kind of discomfort of feeling something and being present with it. And it may not require any action at all. If I'm uncomfortable with, you know, I sit down on the bus or the airplane next to someone of a different race, and I have this little reaction, like, they're different than me. There's not anything to be done. I think just being present and not letting it run us. You know, life is full of discomfort. We get spoiled into thinking that we're supposed to be comfortable all the time. And maybe not. Certainly, Gurdjieff would say, and other fourth-way teachers would say, that we're not meant to be comfortable all the time. Gurdjieff had the uh, analogy of the, the cart and the horse. I don't know if people are familiar with that, but he talked about a cart, a horse-drawn cart, and the different characters in the scenario represent different parts of our being, right? So there's the, the cart, which is like our physical body, and the horse, which is like our vital energy or something. And the passenger, I guess, is the consciousness, and the driver is the mind. But anyway, the point, or one of the points of the analogy that is relevant to what we're discussing, is that the parts of the cart need lubrication. But the way the cart is lubricated, and I guess this is how carts were made back then, And to some degree, it's probably true in vehicles nowadays. But the cart is made to lubricate itself, to distribute the grease throughout the joints and the springs and stuff by the fact that the cart is getting jostled and moving and in action and bumping up and down on a bumpy road. And that going up and down on the bumpy road actually helps the lubrication work its way into all the joints and systems of the cart. And if the road is too smooth, actually the cart can start to malfunction after a while because the lubrication is not getting where it needs to go. So his point in that was that if in modern life we get too comfortable, then we can't function properly. We just get slack and lazy. We're not present, just not present. So that little bit of discomfort getting jostled a little bit is good for us, and we shouldn't try to get rid of all of it. Well, war is an extreme circumstance of being jostled. We're talking about war. I used to hear Trump talk about people's aggression 
And he would talk about aggression and we'd look around and go, there's nobody aggressive here. And it took me some time to recognize that he was referring to our subtle forms of aggression that we're mostly not aware of, like making snide remarks or humorous comments that are a bit cutting, things that have a pointed edge that's at somebody, and how to become aware of these things. Eventually, I figured that's what he means. When I heard the word aggression, I thought, you know, somebody punched somebody in the nose. That's what aggression means. And I realized over time that he was referring to these kinds of social interactions we have, subtle, they're not really so subtle once you start living more on your feminine side. Men tend to miss that. And also when you were talking about xenophobia, fear of others, fear of of that which is different, I thought the first one of that is fear of the other gender. And for women, fear of men is very legitimate because men historically just dominate because of that upper body strength. But there's always that tension when you're sensitive. There's a kind of tension that it's different talking with a female, a woman, than talking with a guy. How is it that we can become sensitive? How can I become sensitive to my aggression? If I'm diligent in my practice, I'm collecting subtle energy that is what can sensitize me to my world. I'm interested in solutions, not keeping talking about the many facets of war and practices, you know, in some traditions, it's sitting on your pillow. In other traditions, it's coming together in a meeting. I was just going to say, yeah, practice means different things to different people. Yeah, whatever it is to you, to be consistent in it. However you, whatever your values are, figure out what your values are and then really bear down on them. Yet with a light touch, because otherwise you can become aggressive doing that. Suzuki Roshi, he was talking about American, you know, bringing Zen over to America and how young Americans would sometimes be militant in their practice of Zen. And that was not really the point. I mean, really, in in a way, when I step back, I see that it's all a big mystery. And I just make up stories because I can't tolerate not knowing. I can't tolerate uncertainty. I can't tolerate being in the unknown and not knowing and living in the world as a mysterious, magical, place that I can't understand, really. I mean, that's how superstition and conspiracy theories get going. They hook into that aspect of our desire for an explanation. We have to appreciate the fact that the mind functions that way because that's how we solve problems. That's how we learn not to be in situations that are difficult and how to fix situations that are difficult. It's our desire to find a solution, an explanation, because that uncertainty of not knowing And then I see someone or someone makes some small comment. I'm like, oh, I react. All the stuff that's going on in my head gets lumped onto my reaction to this person because it's enabling me to just download, to offload this uncomfortable feeling I have. Sometimes even just yelling at someone makes you feel better. You don't necessarily need to be yelling at someone. Just go out and yell at the tree and you'll feel just as well. But if a person happens to be there... Unfortunately, they're going to be the one that gets your download. How do we not do that? I think self-observation. Yes. What does Red Hawk say in his book? He says, I have to observe myself doing something 10,000 times before I can begin to have some awareness of it and then be able to make some different choices. It's just observing, observing, observing. And eventually, we might get to have the ability to make some other choices. It's probably not the only thing, but I think it's a necessary, if not sufficient, component of being able to make, make different choices and to realize that we have a choice even, right? I'd like to share something that I've discovered recently about social interaction. You know, I know that this, this idea of self-regulation in terms of sanity is very important. Being able to regulate myself when I know I'm going off the deep end. And if I can get with someone and allow the, the state that I'm in to be okay, you know, not to that I, I can handle it, that I don't have to put up a pretense. I can walk into a room and be just how I am and admit it. 
then that social interaction is going to shift something personally. And it will also shift something for me in relationship to the person I'm with in terms of trust. That's something that I'm learning about how important it is to put myself with another person instead of isolate with my own immediate dysfunction. Yeah, well, that's one of the values of community. Maybe one of the main values of community, just to be able to connect that way yeah. and to have those encounters that, that teach us about ourselves. Yeah, a couple of things. First is that in the Gurdjieff work, they'll say that in a time like this, we are actually have more opportunities for practice. There's more food available for practice than when things apparently are going smoothly. The other thing um, that's very real for me is to move this whole consideration into the domain of a big view, aligning ourselves with a larger energetic force, which is a force of love. We are actually energy transformational apparatuses. And that's what we do. We take in energy and we have the possibility to transform that energy through the body and to radiate it. So for me, you know, whether it's that you invoke the name of your beloved teacher, guru, you simply invoke the powers of love, you hold in the light those who are suffering, you know, you let your heart be broken and you let your heart pour out. I don't want to say that it's only by going back into my past and making myself better, have better choices, but actually that for me, self-observation is not about making better choices. It's about becoming conscious. And out of consciousness, choices change. I don't make them. I just am different. I can mechanically decide not to scream at this person, but that's it's a very strong efforted something, and they're going to pick it up anyway. But my own experience is that sometimes, by grace, I just don't react. I just smile and move on. Yeah, great. Well, you mentioned heartbreak. I think that's a big aspect of the vulnerability that we need to have to refrain from the aggression. One of the ways in which it comes very practical to me is when I am anticipating a situation that's just a little bit uncomfortable for me because their relationship with somebody or they're going to they're not going to do their job in the kitchen or whatever it is. But if my heart is really connected in some way to the suffering that's going on elsewhere, it really puts a different spin on whether or not I opened or closed the door too loud or they crashed the oven door or whatever it is. It just makes such a difference. I remember the story of some veteran who'd come back from the Iraq war where he had, you know, seen people die and it's a war. And he was in the grocery store, you know, he was out of the army, he was in the grocery store behind somebody, some lady in front of him was like complaining about the coupons, you know, like they weren't accepting her coupons or something. And she was having this tremendous angry reaction and yelling at the cashier and wanting to see the manager and his whole big scene. And the guy, just the description that this veteran gave of how he felt about it was like very penetrating. <laughs> so recognizing other people's suffering. In a sense, just recognizing that the world does not revolve around me as much as I might like to think it does. Yeah, I had a question when you were saying that when you're anticipating a situation that's uncomfortable, like somebody not doing their job in the kitchen and you connect with suffering going on, the bigger suffering going on elsewhere, it's like, how do you make that momentary transition from that place of, oh, I just know this is going to happen again or whatever, to a place of really experiencing your own compassion in that moment. How do you make that transition so that you can show up differently? I don't think I do. Like you were saying, because you have a practice, because I spend time every day in meditation, or I spend time in reading the Dharma or speaking the Dharma, that awareness begins to penetrate and slowly over time, it just made the situation just slightly different. Or sometimes I'll just react and then it'll stop because all of a sudden the remembrance of the suffering of that other person or the suffering of the world will come in. So it's not like I'm doing anything, 
I'm practicing and it's the result of the ongoing focus on the larger view. Right. I hear you. And I was also thinking as you were speaking, it occurred to me that if I can put myself in connection with that person, sometimes I'm having this projection thing going on because I haven't looked into the eyes of the person that I'm having this thing with, or I haven't looked at their face and haven't seen the little edge of sadness on their cheek or something like that, that will sometimes shift it for me. So thank you. Well, thank you for that remembrance, because attention to what's going on in the moment and being present and really listening, that's really helpful. Shogun Trungpa Rinpoche talks about the tender part of the warrior. Instead of getting out there and killing people, we're turning inward and being present with what's actually in our situation, the situation that we are in and those people who are right around us. There's this thing they call amygdala hijack, where we respond to a psychological stress as if it were a physical danger. And of course, that's one of the ways people are psyched up to go to war or to get active for some political cause or whatever, to have the amygdala get triggered so that we get into this aggressive state. But virtual warriorship is not so much about triggering the amygdala that way. I suppose there's probably some involvement in the amygdala at some point, but it's getting to that state of awareness and aliveness. One of the definitions that my teacher gave of the ego is just the drive to dominate and control, because that's what our survival seems to be based on, is we need to dominate and control our circumstance. So this is a way of approaching a kind of warriorship that is not based on the ego, whereas military warriorship typically is based on the drives of ego to dominate and control and win, perhaps at all costs. Well, one other word I would apply to warriorship is vigilance. Yes. Because you'd want to really be watching everywhere. And that's a real quality of spiritual warriorship is a type of vigilance because We're going to lose it. Trump has said something about 3,000 times before breakfast. And it's that staying with it and staying on it with our practice. Some of us are sitting to remember what's going on over in this other part of the world. We have some European friends who are very close to the situation. Just to pray for others who are in this situation that we are removed from over here in America, it seems like I i think we develop beliefs and have opinions as a way to feel safe. Even nationalism, there's a safety in that. So when somebody else threatens that, they have a different opinion, they have a different perspective, they're from a different country that's in conflict with us. We tend to respond aggressively. And we can see this kind of on a macro scale in the world, duh. But I don't think that we're exempt as spiritual students. As spiritual practitioners, those same dynamics are in us. I know that that was mentioned, but I'm just thinking of that in very practical terms. If somebody's got a different opinion from me about something that I'm really identified with, my reaction, it's something that I can feel, I can observe to be with that and let that inform. It's a big subject. We've called it war for tonight, but it's really about working with the human being and the aggressive parts of us. Here's a quote. This is from Morhei Oshiba, also known as Osensei, who is the founder of Aikido. He said that the way of the warrior has been misunderstood as a means to kill and destroy others. Those who seek competition are making a grave mistake. To smash, injure, or destroy is the worst sin a human being can commit. The real way of a warrior is to prevent slaughter. It is the art of peace, the power of love. So if you're not familiar with Aikido, the principle of Aikido is you take aggression that's directed at you and you redirect it so that it becomes neutralized in some way. So that the aggression that's coming at you gets turned around Ideally, not even at the person who's attacking you. You send them off in another direction, but you don't even have to hurt them necessarily. Obviously, not in all circumstances is that practical, but this principle 
is something that is really very powerful. The real way of a warrior is to prevent slaughter. Here's another quote. This is from Carlos Castaneda. And this is from his book, The Active Side of Infinity, which came out in 1998. So, you know, his time with Don Juan was many years earlier than that. And he came out with this book and I think a couple others like the Wheel of Time that were, to some degree, a reinterpretation or a little bit re-editing of the things that he had published earlier. This has a little bit of jargon in it, but I think it's fairly clear. Carlos Castaneda is talking about his teacher, Don Juan, and he says, he explained to me then the intricacies of choice. He said that choice for warrior travelers was not really the act of choosing, but rather the act of acquiescing elegantly to the solicitations of infinity. Infinity chooses, he said, the art of the warrior traveler is to have the ability to move with the slightest insinuation, the art of acquiescing to every command of infinity. For this, a warrior traveler needs prowess, strength, and above everything else, sobriety. All those three put together give, as a result, elegance. My teacher talks a lot about surrendering to the will of God. This sounds like a pretty good description of that using the same language, said that choice for warrior travelers was not really the act of choosing, but rather the act of acquiescing elegantly to the solicitations of infinity. You might say that infinity is always soliciting us to follow a course of action that serves the needs of infinity, something bigger than ourselves. 